interrupt this fireball of a podcast to invite you to check out our incredible new show, Settling the Score. Hi, I'm Brody. And I'm Ronnie. And together we're ranking every significant classical composer. From the 9th century to the now. From the Middle Ages to the modern age. From Bornell to Bach. From Bach to Beethoven. From Beethoven to Boulez and beyond. Join us on an epic step-by-step journey through music history. In which every composer will submit their finest work. To compete in the ultimate showdown. To determine once and for all what is the greatest piece of music of all time. Really, bro? What? What's the matter? The greatest piece of music of all time. As if there's even a way to prove that. Dude, it's a rhetorical flourish. (laughs) It's some kind of flourish. All right, I'll dial it back a little. Yeah, a mezzo forte, please. All right, from rehearsal mark C. Four, five, six. Settling the score. Coming to your favorite podcatcher. Soon. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 126, Stephen VII, the second of our mere shadow successors of Pope John X. A mere shadow. I really hate that you went, this is our 126 episode, the seventh. No. (laughs) Well, you know, again, because of all of the Stephen confusion, he's sometimes Stephen VIII. Would that be better? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's been a lot of uh, discourse online this week about what people think the future Pope's name will be, and people are very, very vocal about how it should be Sixtus VI, because there's no Pope Sixtus VI, and that makes people very upset. (laughs) What a weird uh, conversation. (laughs) I have a lot of conversations on social media about future Popes, Fry. Yeah, Have you no. forgotten what we do? <laughs> I Look, and it, sometimes Greg pops in and he's like, hey, have you thought about this as a successor for the Pope? And I'm just like, I have not, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have. This is clearly a conversation for Brie. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. Let's get into Stephen. Stephen Seventh, episode 126. Doesn't line up. But it's happening. <laughs> Stephen was born in Rome, and his father's name was Theodomundus. Wow. I know. It's such a great name. <laughs> there is a suggestion that Stephen was a member of the Gabrielli family, which has a lineage from Gubbio that will rise to some minor prominence in the next century. But I found no sources that could concretely confirm this, including our trusty papal genealogy. But in this episode, we're going to cover why some historians think this might be true. So Stephen entered the church at some point. (laughs) Sorry, entered the church at some point. Some (laughs) time. Something. Somewhere. (laughs) I say that all the time. Are you just picking up on that now? No, I just, every time, it gets me. (laughs) 
We also just did Pope Jeopardy and bamboozled everybody with a question where the answer was something. Something? Question mark? (laughs) Yeah. And remember, this is the most obscurum of the seculum obscurum, so we really don't know. This one right here, in particular? We are in the mere shadows of ghosts, of phantoms, of whispers that succeeded Pope John X. There's nothing here except to remember Egyptian darkness. Uh, that's the sort of thing we're dealing with. So we don't know when he joined the church. It was just at some point. Well, he had to have so that he could be Pope later. Exactly. But we do know where the somewhere was because he was also appointed to be the cardinal priest of Santa Anastasia. And then when Pope Leo VI died after less than a year on the pontifical throne, Stephen was selected by Marozia to be her next puppet pope. And just like Leo VI, we have no idea what made Stephen VII an appealing candidate to Marozia. But in this case, it didn't really matter, because Marozia had clear plans for the future that were about to come to fruition. You see, Marozia had had a son by her first husband, who was about to become of age, and Marozia fully intended to make him pope when he became of age. What? No, you know what? No. He would be like an 18-year-old pope, right? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What is of age in Italy in whatever century this is? Uh, But, like... Yeah teenage pope imagine i don't know this is where we end up in like (laughs) scandal town where the pope is like i'm not gonna be celibate but like uh, (laughs) you cannot have a teenager commit to that sort of thing (laughs) i love how you're like just imagine because that's absolutely going to happen very, very soon. And we'll see how much am, of your predictions are correct. I'm so, like, I have teenagers. I would not <laughs> give do. them that much responsibility. Like, they're perfectly yeah. capable teenagers. But no. <laughs> but they shouldn't be leading all of Christendom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, in this case, they're definitely gonna... And we're definitely going to talk about it. Oh, I don't want this. Well, you have some predictions of Scandal Town. We're going to see how that goes. The pornocracy. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Why do you think it's called the pornocracy? (laughs) Because we're driving into Scandal Town. Yeah, well, teenage popes feature heavily in Scandal Town and the pornocracy. It's all gonna happen. But fortunately, it's it's not happening this week. Because Stephen VII is at least of an age. We don't know what that age is, but he is of an age. It is not 18. <laughs> it is not 18. But we can assume that he was at least advanced in age. Because Stephen is very obviously being put on the papal throne at this point to keep the seat warm. He's basically being chosen by Marozia because she's like, I've got a son who's just about ready to take this papal throne. You can be our placekeeper until that happens. I'm sure you're going to die soon. So we can pretty confidently conclude that Stephen didn't have 
much going on for him in terms of like ambition or political stance. Basically, all that he has going for him is that he is an easy placeholder. I, okay, (laughs) theory, silly theory. What if she picked him because she just like walked through a room of bishops and was like, which one of you are chronically ill? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You are looking extra decrepit today. You, sir, you shall do. This is the vibe. (laughs) (laughs) what I'm getting. And this is pretty much what he's going to do, because there's not much to talk about with his papacy, and the things he does definitely doesn't ruffle any political feathers here. He's not being chosen to, like, shore them up or fight political fights. It's like, literally, can you keep the seat warm for us? But he did do at least one thing that we can be sure of, so we do have something to talk about. And this is because Pope Stephen VII confirmed the rights and privileges of several monasteries in France and Italy, specifically those who were undergoing the Cluniac Reform. And so this gives us a chance to talk about the Cluniac Reform. (laughs) Not about Stephen, but we can talk about the Cluniac Reform. This was a monastic movement that began at the Abbey of Cluny under the abbot Odo and then spread under his guidance through the monasteries in France, Italy, England, and Spain. So why are the religious houses in Central Europe so in need of reform, you might be asking? Essentially, we can blame it mostly on the Carolingians, or at least on the political instability that was caused by the fragmentation of the Carolingian Empire since the time of Charles the Fat. According to historian Lynn Harry Nelson in their article Cluny and Ecclesiastical Reform, the, quote, failure of the Carolingian Empire to expand turned energies of land-hungry class of fighting landholders inwards. So basically, we now have a feudal aristocracy situation where nobles are seeking to aggrandize themselves. And what do they see? They see a bunch of abbeys and monasteries which are ripe for the picking. Generally speaking, these monasteries had relied on the support and protection of the Holy Roman Emperor on behalf of the Pope, but that system has entirely fallen apart And they now just look like fat, juicy revenue-producing endowments within the territory held by any such noble, who would also be reliant on said noble as a patron to keep the monastery going in any state other than abject poverty. And so these nobles begin to take heavy advantage of the religious houses, using them to line their own pockets and secure advantageous church titles for their relatives, and even, in some cases, like utilizing them as retreat spaces or retirement homes. So this also meant that they could pressure the abbeys to change their rituals and routines and practices to be more convenient for these secular nobles. So like, relaxing the rules on fasting, or habits of poverty, or adjusting the schedule for religious services, because maybe a noble is visiting and they don't want to be woken up super early. (sighs) 
I'm not even kidding. They're just like, hey, um, maybe I want to retire here, but I'm not so big on the fasting thing. So maybe because you all rely on me, we're going to just change the whole way you do things. So while the religious houses were considered the family property of these nobles, their observances of the rule of St. Benedict and other monastic practices are backsliding significantly. And so this is where our abbot of Cluny, Odo, comes in. Because Odo is having none of this adjusted, (laughs) undisciplined monastic living, and he immediately begins to make changes. I mean, it doesn't seem that bad. He doesn't need to get strict on these monastery monks. (laughs) But if you're a monk and you're dedicated to monastic living, it isn't good, right? Because now all of these monasteries are worried about what will happen to them if they don't kowtow to these nobles. Mm -hmm. If they don't, they could be plundered, they could be attacked, they could be turned out because they no longer have a holy Roman emperor to sort of protect them or a pope who has a connection to send people out to protect them. So they have to do all of this. They have no more protection from battliness. None of that. None of that's happening. So in Cluny, monks were brought back into the Benedictine ascetic practices of silence, fasting, simple eating and dress, chastity, service to the poor, and a rejection of worldly indulgence. But Odo wasn't enacting these policies through rigid and harsh observance. By all accounts, he seems to have been temperate and wise and patient and extremely charismatic, so much so that he inspired those around him to want to embrace this reform and inspired several influential people to want to support him in doing so. This guy has all the charisma. He is basically inspiring people to better themselves on Mm -hmm. such a grand scale. He's like, we've been really lax. I'm going to do better. You're going to do better. I believe in you. And people are like, yes, I'm going to do better. And this is where we come back to Pope Stephen, because he granted Odo charters guaranteeing the independence of the Abbey of Cluny and of any other monastery that he spread his reforms to. So protecting them directly from the interference of the nobles, which allowed the discipline of monastic life to be restored. And we are definitely going to come back to Odo and the Cluniac reforms in future episodes. He actually is going to play a role in a whole papal situation. But for now, This is the inception point of the Cluniac reform and how it was able to successfully spread through Central Europe. Interesting. Yeah. And this is also where we are going to plant in our schedule of episodes a wonderful bonus episode that I did with Dr. Rutger Kramer about monasteries and how they reformed and how they went all the way up into the Cluniac reform when Odo gets involved. Amazing. We haven't had an episode with Dr. Rutger for a while. Yes! And I actually recorded this, like, months ago, so... Oh yeah, for sure, I'm sure. (laughs) When we were talking about it, it's like, where is this gonna go? Oh, well, we have to introduce Odo first, so now we can post it. I'm very excited. And on this note, this is likely also why we see commentary that Pope Stephen was also kind of a big, rigid moralist, 
because it seems that even he was inspired by Abbot Odo to bring back some discipline into the Roman Curia. But, I mean, there's not a lot of commentary about this. We know this could only be minimally successful with Marozia and the puppet papacy situation going on. But this man inspired even the Pope to be his better self. (laughs) The only other papal action we have of Stephen is that he granted a man called Cante di Gabrielli the position of papal governor in Gubbio, as well as the control of several fortresses, including one that will become known as the Cantiano after him. So, a couple things on this. First... I want to make it clear that this is not the more famous Cante di Gabriele who will become a papal condottiere in the 11th century, but definitely is an ancestor thereof. Second, this is why some historians believe that Stephen might be a member of the Gabrielli family, since this is a pretty substantial reward. This is a very big position that he's giving out. And third, In many sources, the granting of this position to the Cante di Gabrielli is cited as a reward for Cante's assistance in, quote, freeing the Pope from the oppression of Hugh of Arles, the new king of Italy, established in Pope John X's papacy. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find anything specific on this or what Cante di Gabrielli had done since every source that comes up for that name is in reference to the more famous condottieri from the 11th century. There also doesn't seem to be any sort of commentary that's recorded about Hugh's relationship with Pope Stephen either, so we really don't know what's going on there. But this does give us a moment to talk about what Hugh, the king of Italy, is up to regarding Italy and Rome, because a development is on the horizon that's absolutely going to come up in our next episode. All right. Hugh, king of Italy, is looking to get married. Hugh. Yeah. He's got a set of, like, a bachelor sort of competition. Well, no, because he's got his eye set on somebody very specific that he'd like to marry. Oh, he has someone to give his rose to already. Yes, yes. We are at the end of... However, The Bachelor show works. <laughs> I don't actually. I've never watched it. I only watch weird dating shows. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, The Bachelor is pretty weird, isn't it? I don't. I feel like I don't The know. Bachelor is like the boring, normal one. Like, okay. I don't know. Yeah. It's still pretty weird. It's but... weird. It's, All right. It's weird to be competing for somebody's attention like that. Yes. But, like, it's not. I don't know, some sort of dating show with an obviously strange premise. Well, this is definitely in the dating realm of obviously strange premises. So he's got somebody in mind. Can you take any guesses who that person might be? Oh, um, Marozia. It's the very recently, yet again, widowed Marozia. (laughs) It is. It She's is. the only lady here, okay? She is, the, she is the powerful lady. But here's the thing. Marozia's husband was Guy, or Guy of Tuscany, Hugh's half-brother, and he'd only just died on February 3rd of 929. That's my birthday. 
<laughs> it is. It is your birthday. Not in 929. <laughs> no, I'm not ancient. This is like right at the beginning of Stephen's papacy. So this is very recent. There's like a lot of rules where you're not allowed to marry your brother's wife. Yeah. And all of that stuff. And I get that like maybe they're not full brothers, but I think the rules still apply. You're absolutely correct. The rules do still apply because this could be why. Hugh might have been in conflict with the Pope or oppressing the Pope, as we just read in our last little bit, because due to Marozia's marriage to Guy, her marrying Hugh is indeed canonically illegal on grounds of affinity. Hugh is trying to get around this obstacle, so he just decides to disown and distance himself from his relatives associated with his half-brother. So he's just like, uh, no... I disown my brother. He's he's not my brother, even though he We're is... not actually related. Yeah, we're not actually related, even though we have the same mom. Right? <laughs> he's he's not he's not buying it. He's just trying to distance himself from all that. And perhaps Stephen was resistant in allowing this marriage to take place. We don't have any evidence that that's what's happening, but it's entirely possible because who's going to be the one to enforce canon law about illegal marriages? It's going to be the Pope. Yeah, but he's in her pocket. Yes, he is. That's what we think. We don't know why, but this is this could be why he's in conflict with Hugh, if mm-hmm. he's in conflict with Hugh at all. So that's happening, and uh, we're going to come back to that marriage next time. But finally, we are going to leave Stephen with one final alleged pontifact. Pontifact! According to historian Joseph Hergenrother, citing a hostile post-Great Schism Greek source discussing Pope Stephen, he was the first pope who, quote, was shameless enough to shave himself and to order the rest of Italy to do likewise. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> he makes them feel shavable. <laughs> he feels shavable, so everybody else is shavable. <laughs> he may be, according to the source, the first pope to not have a beard. Okay. Apparently. Yeah, that's that's the pontifact. Even though we've definitely judged popes without beards in without, their official yeah. St. Paul's. Yep. Including Pope Donus, the vampire pope, who absolutely didn't have any facial hair. Yeah, he was a vampire. (laughs) But, like, yeah, there's... I feel like a lot of our contemporary popes are not very beardly. Shameless. Shameless! And what's also ironic about all of this is Stephen is definitely portrayed as a... with a beard in his portrait. So so there's that. Well, clearly he shaved it later. (laughs) He did. I mean, this seems like a weird thing to be mad at, since we do know that there were actual precedents that called for monks to shave, right? Mm-hmm. At the Council of Aachen in 815, there was a canon passed that required monks to shave every 15 days. Oh. So we know that there are precedents about shaving in religion. Mm-hmm. And looking into all of this led me to a website called The Bearded Catholic, which is an interesting journey, and a blog post about papal beard facts. So 
did you know that 70% of popes have had beards? And apparently the last bearded pope was Innocent the Twelfth in 1691. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah, so there's some pontifex for you about papal beards. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if he shaved himself after his portrait was done, that's just <laughs> how it goes. Have you seen my driver's license? <laughs> Your driver's license? Yes. No, I don't think so. Okay, um, because I had to renew it in that lull there where Ember had those lice that were like oh, super no. lice. <laughs> yeah. So I know where this is going. <laughs> because it was super lice, I shaved my head because like I didn't want to yep. fight lice. <laughs> um and then I had to get my license photo taken and renewed. And I haven't had to go in to get another photo because the last time it was, you know, COVID time. So they just renewed it and sent me a new one. So I am still shaven headed on my license oh my photo. Amazing. You need to send me a photo of this. Because I remember, I remember when that happened. And I remember strongly encouraging you because you had all shaved your heads to go do your Christmas photos like that. <laughs> yeah. I did not know that that followed you through your driver's license. It did. That's amazing. Look, it was, th those lace were a problem. They were super lace. That was, that was a hard time. But for the That's entirety amazing. of that town, I can, everyone had the super lice. So we can assume that maybe Pope Stephen wasn't just shaving himself because he felt uh, shameless and shavable. It was because of super lice. Scott, <laughs> super lice. I mean, it's not super lice in your eyelids, so at least there's that. Oh my god. I forgot about the super lice in your eyelids. I will never forget about <sighs> the super lice in your eyelids. So with all of that said, Stephen VII died on March 15th, 931. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we have no information about how exactly he died. Was it like two months? Because you said February 3rd was kind of around the beginning of his papacy. In 929. So okay, you just get a little year. bit of time. Yeah. So we don't know how exactly he died, but of course... This time, Wendy J. Reardon suggests that he might have been murdered by Marozia. Maybe this is more likely this time, because her son does come of age and is going to be our next pope, and... You're not infirm enough. I will stab you. Exactly. Did he just conveniently die at the right time? Probably not. Was she also annoyed that maybe, maybe he was resisting her marriage? You know, it's, see, now I'm picturing Marozia doing the, you're the worst little steak knife stab to the kidney. <laughs> we were just talking about that the other day. We were. Yep. yep. It is an intrusive thought. <laughs> the most casual of stabbing, for sure. So, yeah, maybe he got casually, you're the worst, stabbed because he, as you said, wasn't sick enough. Or maybe it was just a very convenient coincidental death. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Stephen was buried at St. Peter's, tomb destroyed for new St. Peter's, no epitaph survives. That's it. 
No epitaph this time. Not even like a snippet. Nope. Not even a here lies Pope Stephen. He was not old enough to satisfy. Um, yeah. So now it's going to be time to rate this man. Okay. Papatum infallium. He supports Odo and the Cluniac reform, which starts the process of reforming monasteries, making them observant again, and putting them under protection so that they could do that. Yes. So, I mean, that's good overall, but, like, those monks are like, man, our fun time is over. Yeah, but but we don't know if the monks wanted the fun time in the first place or whether the nobles just wanted the fun time. Maybe they were like, thank God the fun time is over. (laughs) I'm a monk. Thank God it's over. It's like some introvert who's like, oh, I can leave the party now. (laughs) Yes, exactly. They're all like that. And then some noble crashes in and is like, I'm going to have an orgy here because I'm a noble. And if you don't let me, I'll stab you and steal all your stuff. Maybe you're happy about this. Mm -hmm. This is a very successful reform movement. (laughs) Odo is inspiring people to be their best selves. And Steven sort of helps him do that. That's about it. I mean, I could give, ooh, Yanni, um, I could give, like, a good five for that, like. Okay, okay. It's not little. It isn't little, especially because of how far the Cluniac reform will go. I don't know if I'm going to be as generous as you, but I'll give him, like, a three, because it's it's getting it off on the right foot. So he'll get an eight in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum? So, technically... Nothing. There isn't really anything here, unless we want to consider the possibility that he was of the Gabrielli family, and so him granting Cante di Gabrielli all of these positions in Gubbio and these fortresses being a little nepotistic. Uh, There's nothing to suggest that that is true. Okay, now, and how, like, have we been giving any like a point for being Marozia's puppet or not uh, we have not yet been giving puppet points because there's going to be so many i mean look at how things went with sergius right there are uh-huh. going to be so many popes in this the sphere of this influence that are going to do a lot of scan they're going to go to scandal town mm-hmm. it's time to go to scandal town so i'm not sure we need to that's fair um i don't think I don't even think I can give him the one point for possible nepotism, because it feels like, yeah. I don't know, it feels like his other legacy is being a good and noble monkish man, and it seems <laughs> like that just is kind of hypocritical. Yeah, it's true, and I and I agree. Now, had... Our one source that we use very often, Papal Genealogy by George L. Williams. If he had made mention anywhere that there was a suggestion that they were related, I might have given him a point for the nepotism piece. But that doesn't even exist there, so it's a zero. Seculari impactum. Again, we really don't have anything. He was a literal seat warmer. We're in the same sort of situation where we could have speculatively given a point and say, hey, maybe he didn't want to let Hugh 
marry Marozia. But again, there there's no evidence of that happening. So mm-hmm. it's got to be a zero. Yeah, it sure does. Fossium Sanctus. And face. Are you ready to look at this man's face? Does he have before a beard? He no. got super. Oh yeah, he has he a beard. Ha- yeah. <laughs> Not only does he have a beard, he has. <laughs> I got, I can't even explain it without giving everything away. So here, just <laughs> it's a it's a profound beard. It's very fluffy. It's very white. It's, it's also some... like he's missing chunks of it. He kind of looks like he has mange. <laughs> He here he kind of gives me a little bit of like Owen Wilson vibes where he looks <laughs> Oh my very... god. He's in the middle of going, Whoa. Not whoa. Exactly. Wow. wow. Oh, it, that's exactly it though. It's that wow, whoa, kind of he looks like something has just happened. And I don't know <laughs> if somebody just ran up and like ruffled his hair to make it look that way, or whether he just saw into the third dimension. Like, <laughs> fourth dimension something's happening that shouldn't be happening and he's having a reaction to it Mm -hmm. it's it's amusing it's good to look at but also besides the white beard he doesn't look that old he really doesn't look that old there is a smaller better version of this that i'm also going to send you where he looks less thousand yard stare oh he looks way less high here okay yeah and maybe a little older okay that one he looks kind of stirred and like he doesn't want to be here yeah as opposed (laughs) to the other one where he looks really high tripping balls (laughs) his hair's all mussed up it's like he's an extra in a cheech and chong film exactly I'm definitely rating on that one. Yeah. It's going to be like a six. Yeah, I also was thinking I would give him a six. Perfect. Perhaps whatever chronic illness he had made him smoke a lot of pot. (laughs) Ancient marijuana, sure. Um, He looks like he's going through it. We don't know what he's going through, but he's going through something. So he'll get a 12 in Facian Sanctus, and when we score that out, that gives him a score of three, which is pretty good. Tempus Pontificus. February of 929 to March 15th of 931, two years, and a score of 0.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Well, no. This is a pornocracy, Pope. Yeah. Yeah. No, none of those. Do we have any more saintly popes? Oh, yes. Okay. Absolutely. We definitely have lots of saintly popes coming up. For sure. But not in this time period. So I can't wait to answer that question in our next episode. (laughs) But that brings us to our total score for him, which is an 11.5. Well, that could have been way worse. It could have been way worse. His other ghost pope that had no info about him last time scored 2.75. So this is a market improvement. It's still not great. So when I ask you, Fry, is he papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? We already know the answer. I'm going to say no. Yeah, it's definitely got to be a no. 
but he did warm the seat for a while. A little bit. Before the teenage pope drove it into Scandaltown. So there's <laughs> We shouldn't that. have given him a driver's license. Yeah, so there's that. So that brings us to the end of the episode. So we have some thank yous to make, of course, to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for always being our inspiration. And to Greg Gassman, our editor, you should be checking out his new mini-series in popular history, mini. Cardinal Numbers. It's not... I know. It's mini in that it's like potato chips, but it's like not mini, as in you're going to get a truckload of potato chips. <laughs> that is the perfect summary. I am going to send him that <laughs> after this episode, because he will like that. But yes. It is exactly that. So you should definitely go and check that out. And from there, we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference.